Thank you so much, Pastor Roger, for leading us in our service. And thank you, Doris, and our musicians and our singers for leading us in the worship of God in song. The title of today's sermon is Q&A with God, Question and Answers with God. Let me begin with this uh, anecdote in our lives. One of my young grandnephews came from overseas for a holiday. And you know the deal when we go on holidays? Uh, we visit and stay at different places. If we are fortunate enough, we may get to stay or bunk in with relatives and save on our accommodation and the holiday is more affordable. So after a huge family dinner, he came to our home, to our house here. And as he got out of the car, as he arrived in the car park here, he said he liked my home, our house, the best. So I asked my grandnephew, my young grandnephew, why? Why do you like my house the best? And he said, your house is the biggest. Then immediately he asked, how come, why is your house so big? So I tried to pause and slow it down and say, I explained to him, I'm a church pastor and this is a church building. This is not ours, but indeed it's a big building and this, uh, this building has 11 rooms or 13 rooms and not ours. And then as he listened to all the explanation, he said, I want to be a pastor. Q&A. We all have questions. We all seek answers from childhood to adulthood and to the last seasons of life. In that sense, our life is a series of Q&A. Our questions can range from what? Our questions can range from the casual to the churning questions of life. What are casual questions? Casual questions are, that are those that spring from innocence. And casual questions only need the standard answers, like my grandnephew's question to me, the standard answers. Could be at times superficial answers, the brush-aside answers. Um, churning questions are quite different. Churning questions is when we lose our innocence. From what? Churning questions is when we lose our innocence in living in a broken world. And this does not just need simple answers, standard answers, brush aside the question answer but it needs truly satisfactory answers for our deeply broken hearts. So there is a difference in our life of Q&A, whether we are asking casual questions, which is mostly functional today, or the churning, burning questions for all our broken hearts and brokenness in this world. A father was relating to me that his young son asked one night, and what did he ask? How come mum is so late tonight? How come mum is not coming home yet? How come mum is so late? And he kept repeating it in the two, three hours after dinner. And the father had no choice to finally say deep into the night, Son, mum is not coming back. She has left us for good. She likes another man more than she likes daddy. And she has gone to live with him. That would be an example of our broken hearts and our broken wolves and the, churn, the casual question that would soon become a churning question in the life of this young boy. Genesis 15 to 16 is the pivotal passage documenting the game-changing, universe-shattering Q&A. And this is between God and Abraham and Sarah, the question and answer. And Abraham and Sarai are the two most important characters on which the destiny of the world 
hinges. So chapter 15 is Abraham's Q&A of God. And chapter 16 is Sarah's Q&A of God. So let us plunge in and read this together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and the member of my household will be my heir. And so to unpack this, we need to understand what it means by after these things. After these things most likely refers to the events of Genesis chapter 14. In chapter 14, right, God had encountered two kings in that chapter, but now he encounters God in two strange encounters. First is a vision, and the second is most likely God encountering Abraham in a dream. And then there's this phrase that is repeated, that's spoken of in the first time in Genesis and then repeated many times in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came is then a short form in the Old Testament for the prophetic word of God. And the word of the Lord came and the first thing God says to Abraham in this vision, I am your shield. If you're watching this with someone in your family, can one of you offer to say this to the person sitting next to you and say, I am your shield. And if somebody is saying that to you in the family, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, are you kidding? A shield? You can't even protect me from a lizard. You can't even protect me from a cockroach. You can't even protect me. I'm your shield. I'm your shield is a martial military word. And God has just revealed to Abraham in the previous account, recorded in the previous chapter, that God is, that this is a new side of him, he is a warrior God. He will fight battles on behalf of Abraham and later on behalf of Israel, the nation that comes from Abraham. And then when you fight wars, this next thing makes sense. Your reward will be great. Why? Because when we fight wars, we get riches or the bounty or the booty of who we defeat and who we conquer. Now, the context here is quite important. In Genesis 15, in this vision and the word of the Lord that came to Abraham. Because in Genesis 13, God very kindly gave Lot, no, Abraham kindly gave Lot what? The first choice to avoid the conflict between his herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen over the lack of grazing land. Too, too much cattle, too, too many things, too bountiful, but too little land. And Abraham gave kindly Lot the first choice. Then, after the parted ways, Abraham heard. What have you heard last week? This is what Abraham heard. He, he heard that Lot was caught up in a regional conflict. A regional conflict that now turned out to a regional warfare between the kings of the east and the king of the west. And from this regional conflict that burst into regional warfare and half the world that we live in, we are, we are having tensions in the South Chinese, South China seas. We are having tensions in the Middle East, always tensions in the Middle East. Out of this conflict, out of these tensions, out of the warfare, Lot was captured. And his whole household and all his possessions and Abraham, out of his good-heartedness, though Lot had parted ways with him, taken the first choice, 
he embarked on a most risky life and death night raid, night rescue of Lot. And by God's power, he managed to save Lot, his household and all his belongings. You read that in chapter 14. In doing so, he also saves the king of Sodom. But then the king of Sodom, see, Abraham in saving his nephew Lot also saved the king of Sodom. And how did the king of Sodom respond? How did he reciprocate? He responded, this is what you must never do to God. You must never do to Abraham. You must never do to all who come from Abraham's line. And what is that? You must never dishonour him. Because all who bless Abraham will be blessed and all who dishonour him will be cursed. And so the king of Sodom, most blessed but most ungrateful. That is a spiritual lesson you never want to cross. A spiritual principle you never want to break. Most blessed but most ungrateful. But he did offer Abraham a grudging gift of uh, the bounty from the war, the booty from the war. But Abraham rejected him and says, I will trust solely in God to bless me. I will trust solely in God to reward me. And God's blessing and reward now comes in chapter 15. So, what happens from this point onwards? There's a churning question. There's a churning, burning question in Abraham's heart from his increasingly desperate circumstances. And to summarize this portion, to paraphrase this portion, Abraham is saying to God, God, it's been a long time between phone calls. It's been a long time between emails. It's been a long time between our, our tweets. It's been a long time between uh, since our Instagram. I just received a message and it began this way. Chris, it's been a long time since we last met. Can we catch up? It's been a long time. It's been a long time, God. And Abraham is saying to God, if you have not noticed, I'm getting older and Sarah is not getting any younger. We are both on the same age group and the writing is on the wall. What's the writing on the wall? I'm aged, oh God. I'm childless, oh God. And I'm airless. And should I not in all logic, in all rationality, in all responsibility, since I'm aged, since I'm childless, since I'm airless, not give this to Eliezer, most likely the manager, the most trusted person or the oldest person in his household. He's not my child, but he's from my household, oh God. Maybe I should give it to him. I'm childless, oh God. How can I be sure that you will bless me with offspring? And the Hebrew word is zerah. I was listening to the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and listening to different cultural, societal responses to the whole problem and issue and pain and plight of what? The whole plight and pain of childlessness. And so in a good number, significant number, if not majority of African communities or nations, childless women face what? Childless women face outright discrimination, humiliation and condemnation. For some tribes, they are so ostracized, they are so marginalized, they are so discriminated against, they have no right to be buried with their tribes. 
They are exiled, they are sent away, they are cast away, they are outcast. And then in that BBC report, through archaeological findings, they found decades later, if not centuries later, how this childless woman sent away from their tribes, their bones, their, their, their remains are found hundreds of miles or kilometres from their, from their tribes. Really, really sad, don't you think? Childlessness was a huge stigma. It's still a huge stigma now. It was a huge stigma then, but it will magnify that many times in Abraham and Sarah's ancient world, ancient Near Eastern world. In the words of one commentator, childlessness was unmitigated sorrow, which means it is un incomparable sorrow and misery to be childless in the ancient Near Eastern world. And for Abraham and Sarai, childless means no children. No children means no one to carry on the family line. No one to carry on the family line means no one to conduct our funeral rites. And no one to conduct our funeral rites means no one to secure what? Our soul's destiny into the next life. Don't forget, Abraham and his forefathers were all called out of an idolatrous background to be the worshipful people of God. So you've got to see them weaning themselves off from all these cultural, hand-me-down religious beliefs. No children, no one to carry on my family line, no one to conduct my funeral rites, no one to secure our soul's destiny next life, no one to pass on anything to. And what was God's answer to Abraham's churning, burning question. It's this in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven, look, the number, and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God's first answer to Abraham's burning, churning question is, you will have your very own son. The Hebrew translates literally, your son will come from your very loins. This will be your own child. It won't be someone from your household. It will be from you, Abraham. Then he asked Abraham to go out and look at, this, look at creation. God always does that again and again. So that you do not forget, I'm God, the almighty creator. Please look at creation. Abraham asked for one very countable child. Just give me one child, one heir. And God showed him uncountable offspring. As numerous as, as numerous as, as numerous as the dust of the earth. And God had hinted about this, spoke about this in Genesis 13, verse 15 to 16. And God said to Abraham then, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And now the new things as the stars in the sky. As numerous and as uncountable as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky, will now be the repeated formula of the promise-keeping God. The God who keeps His promise against what? 
more about that later. And then what was Abraham's response? Abraham's response is perhaps one of the most magnificent verses that you and me have to understand, then memorize, then live our life with, and live our life by. Chapter 15, verse 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The language is not Abraham believed God once off, right? I believe God once off. But the Abraham, uh, the language is Abraham believed God and he kept on believing God. He continued to believe God. And this kept on believing God may have begun with God's promise to him in Genesis 12. And now the prophetic word to him in this vision, and this is very, very important, it's not just once-off belief. Hey, there is a special offer going on in Singapore now. Now we're going to get $100 vouchers. Do you believe that? It's once-off belief. Do you believe that? But can you carry on believing that there are a lot of goodies out there and it's given by good-hearted people to you and to me? So let's unpack the very nature and character of faith that is here. Faith, right? Which is more important, God, the object of our faith, or we, the subjects, who choose to believe in God? Which is more important, the object of our faith, or we, the subject? And the two things must, must be together. I told you, as I began my opening illustration, I live here in, in a home provided by the church, at the back of the church building. And living in our home here, we call it in Presbyterian old language, the mans, M-A-N-S-E, right? There have been a few embarrassing moments. And one of the few embarrassing moments is this. Some of the visitors have come to our house at the back of the church building. And as they sat on our chairs, the chairs broke and they fell on the ground. They apologized, we apologized. And um, <laughs> why do chairs break? Sometimes chairs break because of our weight. We are overweight. Sometimes chairs break because as we sit on that chair, we are swaying to and fro. We are testing the veracity and the solidness of that chair. And also, I do not know, the, the people who sat in our chairs at home and broke it, uh, it's a combination of both. A little bit overweight because they were mainly IKEA chairs, right? A little bit overweight and they were testing it, testing it, and they broke, bang, they fell on the ground. It's as if to say, right, if they came and sat on a chair provided by the church, surely church chair cannot break, right? It's rock solid. Or a church, our chair provided by pastor, surely pastor's chair cannot break, surely rock solid. That's not the message. Faith is the attitude and action that considers the object totally reliable. And the object is totally reliable, unlike a church-provided chair or a pastor-provided chair. And faith is trusting in the object. And the object so happened to be the most important person of the universe, the most mighty person of the universe, God. So when God said to Abraham, go, he packed his bags and went to the land that God called him to go. So for Abraham, faith was taking God at his word. For Abraham, faith was he bet his life on God's promises. He listened to God's word, he listened to God's voice, and then he bungee jumped into God's will. Because God's word 
communicates his will, his way of living life by faith. And so that's the first thing to unpack, that the first focus of faith is on the solidness, the reliability, the trustworthiness of the object of our faith. It is none other than God himself. You can bet your life on him. And God counted this faith to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness just means, if you wanted a simple explanation, and what does righteousness mean? It means right with God. This is how to be blessed. This is how to be right with God. And this is how to be safe. Safe from self, safe from sin, and finally safe from Satan. Safe from self-effort, safe from self-rescue, safe from sin, and safe from Satan. This is how we please God. This is how we delight God. How? By faith. As simple as that by banking our life on God and His Word and by listening to His voice. So, if righteousness is right with God, righteousness is not a performance or merit word. Righteousness is an acceptance and a grace word. Righteousness is when you get what you do not expect and what you do not deserve. That's righteousness. Simply because the who you believe in has given this to you, what you do not expect and what you do not deserve. So we went to a conference in the UK and Mona went with me and the family too and uh, we had booked a rental car because we had a few churches to go to to preach, a few conferences to go to and so we landed, we stayed at a friend's house for the night then the next day, first thing in the morning, we had to begin our travelling around the UK to different places and we went to pick up the the car that we had booked, the rented car. So I walk up to the counter, I said, I booked a car, and she said, what model? I think we had booked an Opel. And then she found the record, says, yes, sir, you have a booking here. Uh, you did book an Opel. And um, I'm sorry to say, sir, we ran short of that model. But uh, we are upgrading you to a Mercedes. I couldn't believe my ears when she said that. We are upgrading you to a Mercedes. So I tried to process that for a while. I think I was stunned and lost for words. Then I said something really foolish just off the top of my head and through my mouth and I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm driving to churches and conferences. I, I don't think the Mercedes would be suitable because everywhere I go, as I get out of the car with my family, they'll be thinking, whoa, how oh, he's arrived in a Mercedes, right? So, um, and she laughs and says, sorry, sir, that's all we have. Actually, for most people, right, They'll be jumping for joy if you up, they got upgraded from an Opel to a Mercedes. You are the first one to reject this. All I did was book and believe there would be a car there, a functional car. I booked and I had faith there'll be a functional car and I got something I never expected and something I don't think I deserve. So for that whole trip of a week, we drove around unthinkably in a Mercedes Faith is God giving you everything you do not deserve, not something you do not deserve, something you do not expect, everything you do not expect. And so it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. In summary again, you took God at His word, you bet your life on Him, you listened to His word, you kept believing in His word like Abraham, then you bungee jump into His will, you are right with God. A righteousness from God. The outcome, 
blessed by God, considered righteous, not sinful by God. This spiritual truth is so mighty, is so powerful, that the New Testament holds this faith righteousness, or righteousness by faith, as the formula to be saved. And you'll find it in key passages like Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. And why? Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The churning question as they discussed this is, uh, did Abraham work for it? Was it a salary? Something he got out of merit? Or was it a gift from God? Was it grace from God? And for Abraham and all his descendants, both physical and spiritual children of Abraham, the message is this. Whatever life throws at us, beginning with what life threw at Abraham and Sarai, old age, childless, getting worse and worse by the day, by the year, more and more desperate, whatever life throws at us, whatever circumstances, choose faith. Choose faith in God's word. Choose faith in God's promises. Choose faith in God's way to bless you. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. This is how to be blessed. This then is how we shall be saved from self-effort, self-rescue, self-redemption, from sin, from the wages of sin, from Satan lying to us that we can save ourselves by some other means, by religious good works or moral living. No, friends. This then is how we are saved. Faith in God and His promise, and His promise to bless us His way. That's the first question Abram asks. The second question, we pick it up from verse 7. If you have a Bible still open with you, Highly encouraged as you listen to God's word that the Bible, God's word, is open to you. If not, allow me to read it for you. Chapter 15, verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. To possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all this, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So we say, right, I'm just going to explain it here, that the first encounter with God here was most likely in the vision. The second encounter of Abraham with God was most likely in the dream. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in old age. They shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Allow me to summarize. Bring forth the main points so that you get as faithful an interpretation of this. 
And so Abraham says, and I paraphrase again, Oh Lord, oh Lord my God, I'm childless. How can I be sure that you can bless me with offspring? That was his first question. God's answer, it will come from your very loins. Now he moves on. I'm not just childless, but I'm landless. Two impossible things. How can I be certain that my descendants, which you say, are going to be more numerous than the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky? How can I be certain that my descendants, O Lord, will possess the land? And what was God's answer? Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, five animals, three three-year-olds, all used as what? All used as sacrifices. And this was a, a ceremony, a ceremony celebrating this covenant relationship that God will have with Abraham and his descendants. And the animals are cut into half. And then it ends in this portion of the smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passing between the two halves of the cut animals. And what is it all about? It's a symbol. A symbol of what? A symbol of, in the words of one commentator, God obligating himself, God committing himself totally to this relationship to Abraham and Sarai. This is a symbol of God's consuming zeal, God's utmost seriousness, God's total commitment, God's complete reliability in this covenant. I do not know whether there are any modern-day human earthly versions of this. But sometimes, you know, a lot of times we have the weddings here. The weddings here, as in most church weddings, all church weddings, right? And uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in hell, till death do us part, so help me God. We make those promises and it's um, barely two minutes, barely one minute, depending on the speed in which your solemnizer leads you or you memorize that vows. You know, sometimes when we live long enough, you realize. So a lady came up to us, her husband had passed away. And, um, but before he passed away, he, he had a bad fall and he, had, he needed to be nursed. And he needed to be nursed 24-7. Before that, he was the, the powerhouse in the marriage, the powerhouse in the family. He did all things from marketing to cleaning. All of a sudden, because of, his, because of his fall, and now he was now bedridden, she had to look after him 24-7. And then she said to Mona and said to me, I never knew the gravity of my vows. I never knew the seriousness for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until that time. 20, 30, 40 years later, when he was now right, paralyzed, from his fall. God makes this vow. He obligates himself, he commits himself with utmost seriousness. And basically, he's saying, I, coven I covenant myself to what? I covenant myself to you, Abraham and Sarai, and to all your descendants, to this humanly unbelievable, this humanly impossible, this humanly achievable promises to bless you with child, to bless you with land as you are now childless and landless in your old age and to bless the whole world through you. Which means that the destiny of the whole world, the promise of God to bless the whole world now stands and falls 
on the first two recipients of this promise, Abraham and Sarah. Sometimes when you live in this world, you buy a service, you buy a product, more likely a product. And I was reading somewhere, or somebody was telling me that they went for this renovation of their home, right? And the contractor that they, they secured or they contracted with, he says, lifelong guarantee. <laughs> lifelong guarantee for the renovation. And when you look at that kind of promise, right? Lifelong guarantee for your renovated house or home. He says, uh, whose life? The life of the contractor, the life of the director, the life of the owner of the company, the life of the board of directors of this company, uh, which one? The life of the company itself? Lifelong guarantee. The only one who can give a lifelong guarantee without mucking around, without messing around with our mind, without lying through our teeth, the only salesman who can give this promise is God. This is a lifelong guarantee for you and for all descendants and for all mankind. This is the promise of God. Then you read a very strange thing. Allow me to read this for you. The sun had gone down, verse 17. It was dark. Behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kesmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. What is this final portion all about? Before this, remember, God had said, your descendants, 400 years. 400 years of what? 400 years of oppression and 400 years of slavery in a foreign land. And what's this about? The Amorites. And then the longest list of all of the pre-Israelite occupants of the promised land, Canaan. Ten. Why does God name all that? The Amorites. The lesson here is the gap between God's initial promise and final fulfilment will be filled with what? The gap between God's initial promise to Abraham and his final fulfilment will be filled with suffering. It's not a straight line. It's like a maze, a garden maze, M-A-Z-E. Right? What's a maze? You small children go in there, they run in the maze, they get lost. They say, Daddy, mommy, I'm lost, I can't get out. What's a maze? It's actually a straight line with bends. If you look at the, the 2D view from the top, Vertically, you look down, you see it's a straight line with bends. But as we walk in the pilgrimage of faith under God, this straight line between promise and fulfillment has bends. And what do we learn? What do we learn? The oppression, the 400 years of oppression and oppression experienced in slavery. And we will read that in Exodus. And we read that of them living under Pharaoh where his, God's people's suffering will reach their depth. And the Amorites, they are, their idol worship and their sinfulness will reach their height. And guess what? In working out God's promise and fulfilment, God knows how to calibrate. God knows how to calibrate. He will bring mercy to the suffering of his people. He will bring justice against his enemies. 
in their idolatry and their sinfulness. And so God knows the mercy of God to save his own, the justice of God to punish his, his enemies. And that's what it's all about, this portion. God knows how to be God. That's the message he wants to send to Abraham. Abraham. And we just need to know how to have faith in this God. At the time when they have lived through 400 years of oppression and slavery, the cries of the people reach out to God and God in His mercy and compassion reaches out to save them. At the time when the Amorites and the Canaanites reach their idol-making and their, their self-power, the kingdoms of, of self at their height, God will bring them to judgment by punishing them. Now friends, think of that, think of that truth. This new thing that God is revealing to Abraham between promise and fulfilment. What is it? And God usually times and calibrates for sinfulness to reach its worst and salvation to come at its best. For sinfulness to reach its worst and salvation to come. And sometimes, or a lot of times in your life, sinfulness to reach its worst, or you just discovered, oh, there's been adultery, oh, there has been... There has been pornography, oh, there has been betrayal, oh, there has been this. You, it's at its worst. It is both the worst of times and the best of times because in the most sinful of times, you find God reaching out in His perfect time between promise and fulfilment of salvation. And I can say to you again and again, just ask people across the board who have come to salvation here in ARPC and beyond, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times. Worse in that, that my sinfulness that I've been hiding for so long has finally burst forth. It was discovered. But then it's also the best of times because then you know that only one person can save you from the mess that you created with your hidden sin in your heart, in your work, in your studies, in your home. And that is God bringing his fulfillment of his promise to save you. You know, you look at this whole portion. Abraham is saying, give me a peek at your promise into the future. And God says, I'll let you look at the stars. Right? And give me a peek of how many children. I just want to know whether I have a child. And God says, I'll give you a peek. You have many children. Give me a, a small glimpse into the land. And God says, I give you a glimpse into the land. Not just short, but into 400 years into the future. So maybe it's a little bit like, you know, we're driving in pitch dark darkness, right? And pitch dark darkness, you use your low beam, you use your high beam. And Abraham was just asking, just give me the low beam view. I just want to see ahead. And God now in this passage gives him the high beam view. This is as far as I can show you. And guess what? I will still be as committed to fulfill the promise to you and your descendants. And so this is the God of covenant. That time and space will not slow him down, will not lessen his commitment, nor lessen his capability to save you and me. This is all of God against all odds. All odds of age, all odds of doubt, all odds of self-rescue, all odds of God's discipline and all odds of God's punishment of his enemies. 
This God can save through time. He's the only God who can save, who can say to us, lifelong warranty, lifelong guarantee, and you can stick your life on this God that it will pass on to the generations. Then we come to chapter 16. In chapter 16, the camera now moves to the second recipient of this promise, Sarai. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female servant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And so you have just seen that God himself will obligate, will commit. He is totally zealous to make sure that he will fulfill the promise. And he secures that by this covenant in which he passes through the carcasses. I made the promise and I will make it come true. Guess what? We learn very early on from chapter 12 that this covenant, this promise, will always be put at risk. This covenant will always be threatened by the covenant recipients. In chapter 12, it was threatened by Abraham. So remember, he saw there was famine in the land, so he decided to move out of the promised land, go to Egypt, and as he entered Egypt, he feared for his life. So what threatened the promise? What threatened the promise were three factors. And the three factors was Abraham's timidity, Sarah's beauty, and she was still beautiful at 65. And of course, at that time, the 60s were the 40s, the 60s or the 30s, because they lived a long time into their hundreds and their 200 years. And then Sarah's beauty, a woman's beauty is not a problem, if not for men's depravity, men's greed. Pharaoh already had a harem, and he wanted one more beautiful woman in his harem. This new woman had just come into Egypt. And so as a result of that, there was every chance as Sarai was, in one sense, given into that harem, that she could have borne a child from Pharaoh. All things could have gone wrong. So the threat to the promise was really there. But now in Genesis 16, it's not Abraham that threatens the covenant, the promise, and then the covenant. It begins this way. It begins what way? Here it is, Sarah's doubt. The Lord has prevented me from having this child. Her doubt of God himself that led to impatience with God's fulfillment, God's timing. When we doubt the person of God, we doubt the ways of God, we doubt the timing of God. So Sarah's doubt flowed into her impatience. And then Sarah's doubt was met by Abraham's passivity. He listened to Sarah's voice. He should have, he just met God in a vision and a dream. He should be listening singularly and solely and mainly to God's voice over all the circumstances of his life. He listened to Sarah's voice. And then Sarah commanded the servant, Hagar, and Hagar complied. But did you notice? All of this sounds really familiar. It sounds like, it sounds like, the, it sounds like Genesis chapter 3, part 2. 
and each one of them resorted to their own wisdom, to their own circumstances. And this is the slippery road of human wisdom and human self-effort. And the slippery road of human wisdom and self-effort will always have the fingerprints of depravity, the fingerprints of sin. You can never say that Sarah's plan was God's plan B. God has only plan A. It's Abraham. It's Abraham, right? So this is fake wisdom and counterfeit wisdom. The slippery road for Sarah, did you know she moved from initial impatience? Then she blamed Abraham. How come you went along with my plan? You should have said something about it when I asked you to go and sleep with Hagar. And then it turns to hatred to Hagar. So from initial impatience to ongoing blame of Abraham to final hatred for Hagar, Abraham, he put, he firstly put his relationship with God at risk, right? By listening to the voice of Sarai, not God. He then put his marriage at risk by, by agreeing to a surrogacy child with Hagar. And then he put Hagar at risk because he didn't stop Sarai from hating her to the point of chasing her away. Hagar, her slippery road was compliance at first, to contempt, to runaway servant. So notice, when we embark on human wisdom to solve our human problems, our dire circumstances, it moves from fake wisdom to fake good works that messes things up, things up. So I said to you two weeks ago, as we look at Abraham, the formula for our self-works is, you think self, you harm others, you use others, you grieve God, finally. But it always begins with, you are sitting in your own bubble, you're interpreting your own circumstances. I'm getting older, I'm childless, I'm landless, I've got to take things into my own hands. It begins with you think self, you harm others, you use others, and then you grieve God. Your life and my life, when you embark on human wisdom and human works, have all those three markers. Think self, harm others, grieve God. Think self, harm others, grieve God. And that's why your life is going downhill. That's why your life, as you listen to this, wherever you're listening to this, has gone downhill. And if you don't listen to God's voice, intervene in your life graciously, it's going to spin downhill even more and you're going to have more broken glass to walk on than you ever care to acknowledge or imagine. So how does it end? How does it end? It ends this way. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress, submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell against all his kinsmen. 
So Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I've seen him who looks after me. So, let's summarize. How does it end? Abraham sin, sins. He takes things in his own hands in chapter 12. Against the famine, he finds help. He tries to find rescue in, in Egypt. Sarah sins now. She thinks of her own wise plan to bring a child to Abraham. And then, what is the lesson? Did you notice God is able to weave and massage our sinfulness into his great salvation plan? And that's so much a part of the gospel story, the Bible story, the standout story of Christianity. God weaving in mercifully yet mightily. God massaging your flaws and your failures, what's and all, into his great salvation plan to bless. Abraham will have a child. We'll have that child by Hagar. But this will not be a child of blessing. This will be a wild donkey of a man. For the true child that was promised to Abraham, all who bless Abraham's descendants will be blessed. This one, the wild donkey of a man, he will hate and others will hate him. So this cannot be, Ishmael cannot be the child of promise. This is not God's child. And what do we see? We say again, you see all of God acting against all of our sinfulness, against all odds, against all our sins, a God who obligates, but now we also start to see and we'll finally see a God who not just commits himself, obligates himself to keep this covenant. I'm out to bless you. I'm out to bless you. I will bless you in the end, no matter how much you sin against me, personally and nationally in Israel's life. And God will finally pay the penalty for his covenant. He cut a covenant with Abraham. He will pay the penalty for the covenant. And we know that penalty is the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. The God who weaves and massages all our flaws and foibles, all our folly and stupidity, all our human wisdom that thinks self, harms others and grieves God into his great salvation plan. So Abraham's questions, burning and churning questions, answered by God's cutting of a covenant. I will bless you and I'm going to make sure it comes true. And by faith, Abraham believed in God and was counted to him as righteous, righteousness. Sarah's questions, Sarah's question, will it be through me? I don't think it's be through me. Maybe through a surrogate mother. And God gives her undeserved mercy and undeserved grace and makes right the folly of her ways. Lessons for us as we end. Very important ones. Keep. Three keeps. Keep listening to God's voice above every voice, no matter what the circumstances. Keep listening to God's voice over against every voice, no matter what your circumstances. And boy, are there not many voices during COVID-19 that is scaring the lights out of us, that is scaring the faith out of us, Will I have a job? Will I keep a job? 
Will, I, will my children be blessed? What kind of world? Will there be another disease that's worse than this? There's so many voices that we have to grapple with from moment to moment, from day to day. Keep listening to the voice of God. Keep believing in God's Word. Keep betting your life on God's Word. Keep bungee jumping from His Word into His will. And thirdly, keep out of God's way. Don't go down this road. You know, there's a road in Singapore called Kepo Road. Kepo in some dialect means busybody. Busybody means it was not your business to do this, but it is your business to do that. It's also a name. So all those names, Kepo, I, I do apologize, but Kepo, when you use it lightheartedly or as a slang, etc., it's being a busybody. Get, keep getting out of God's way. And we have now coined a phrase that we borrowed, a kind of phrase for our church leading us to God's blessing of this new gazetted place of worship, ARPC at Tengah. And the 5Gs are God's work, done God's way, in God's time, for God's glory, will never lack God's supply. God's supply of wisdom, God's supply of perseverance, God's supply of, of waiting, God's supply of the right person at the right time. Isn't that true? Is when we get in the way of the five Gs, when we get onto the Kepo road, instead of the gospel road, the highway, five Gs, keep going with the five Gs. Don't mess it up. And God, sometimes His purposes takes 400 years. Is never a straight line. Never a straight line between the initial promise and the final fulfillment. It's a straight line with kings. It's a straight line with bends. And that's how you might feel at this moment. So don't go down that road. And so how do we apply this to, the, to life? One of my prayers from one of my worries for myself and all of us, as we now sit and move, have moved globally around the world from on-site physical services to online virtual services, that in the initial weeks it was all so good Right? People were dying to tune in to our stream services at the right time, 5pm on Saturday, 9am on Sunday morning, 11.30. Now it's OTOT, own time, own target. Everything is on demand, on demand. You and me are in your own bubble. My worry for that is not simply that you would listen to this and as we lead you in worship, you're sitting there and just lounging around, want to listen, listen, don't want to listen, don't listen, not exciting, tune on to the next uh, speaker, tune on to the next service. I'm not just worried about that. I'm just worried about you being in your own bubble and own time, own target starts to affect your listening to God's voice. You're listening to His Word you're no longer doing the bungee jumping into His will. Own time, own target to solve this problem. I feel so fearful. I feel so lonely. I feel so alone. I feel so... Whatever you're feeling, whatever is overcoming you, don't get used. You know, in Psalm 55, the psalmist is facing problems and he says, evening and morning and noon will I pray and cry aloud. God is His Monday to Sunday God. God is his wall-to-wall -wall God, is his waking to sleeping God and everything in between. My worry for us through COVID-19, in and out of this, own time, own target, we sit there in our cocoon, interpreting our own circumstances, embarking on our own wisdom and capoing ourselves to disaster. That could be you. That could be me. When a child 
does this and insists on their own way, they merely throw a tantrum, five-year-old, three-year-old, then you become a teenager. Nothing is going right in school. Nothing is going right with friends. Somebody just broke up with you or somebody just rejected your advances. You retreat, right? So we hear it very not just in our youth group, but youth group across the board, that the youth are not zooming in. And so you're not zooming in once a week for an hour or half, one hour and a half and two. What are you doing as youth? Right? Own time, own target. Whose voice are you listening to? Who are you hanging out with? I just had a phone call with someone from overseas and you're saying that he, he's a young boy, right? Um, not in secondary school, still in primary school, nine years old, ten years old. Weeks ago, months ago, he was the sweetest boy, right? He prayed the sweetest prayer. But the last few weeks, he started to see changes in him. And what was bringing about the change in him? That this young son of his was most likely hanging around with the wrong company. The wrong company so that teachers were starting to say, uh, uh, please come to the school, uh, your son has just got into trouble again. My son has never got into trouble. When you do this thing and we retreat and you're self-interpreting what are you doing? In your own wisdom, you're escaping into no pleasure out there, no success out there, pornography? That's a disaster, friends. That's your own escapism and that's your own pleasuring of yourself. It arrives nowhere but you being an addict to this. And marriage is not turning out well, let me escape somewhere. Uh, aging is not turning out so well, let me escape somewhere. But I want to say to you, side by side with these dangers here, there have been so many bright spots. We must never get used to evicting God from our lives, centering and revolving around us. And so, weddings, some may be tempted to think weddings, oh, now restricted to, initially it was 10 packs, now 50 packs. Are we going to go back? And then, oh, wait too long, might as well just live in together, Lord? try before you buy. Is that your way out of this? No, friends. If you can't, if you can't keep sexual purity, you should marry sooner rather than later. There should be no live-in arrangements for ourselves. And are we going to find people postponing marriages and people having affairs because it's own time, own target? We thank God that as the MPR rolls up, the marriage preparation retreat, 20 couples have signed up. And we're so glad that nothing is going to derail their plans to get married. Hey, hooray! and they want to learn how to live a holy life for this. Then the new member services, about 90 of people have signed up. Then the Just for Newcomers, about 50 people. Are you, are you inviting people to listen to this Genesis series where the whole of life is centred on how then shall we be safe? Never, never embark on self-effort and self-redemption. Always, always trust in God's promise and final fulfilment in Christ. It is by this faith we are credited righteousness and blessed now and forevermore. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Let's turn to God in closing prayer. And now, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, show us the beauty, the majesty, and empower us to believe the goodness of this spiritual truth. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Save us from our self-rescue in any and all seasons of life, in any and all circumstances, that we will not mess up 
your wonderful plan of salvation fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. We ask this in your mighty name, for your glory. Amen.